Hello, world! We're here and it's build. How are you doing, Frank? Going very well. It was a long weekend for me. Like, uh, so very happy. Four days long weekend. Did some kayaking and now I'm all pumped up. It was a very good day with build. So, so you went straight from like kayaking into build? Wait, well, I had like a, a rest period. Like I slept a few hours in between those two things. <laughs> Well, it was actually good you got a break before build because we've got like a jam-packed agenda from what I can see of all the things that are happening. Are you excited? Should we think about and look at what happened in build over the past? Yeah, I think I think like the full show is all about like the greatest news that has been just announced. It's still it's still warm. It's so, That's true. so new. Yeah, I was actually I remember watching Satya's keynote and he talked about there being a hundred plus announcements, and I'm like. How on earth are we going to go through all these? But then I realized we have a book of news, isn't that right? Yeah, you want to share it? Like, let yeah. me share that. Let's go look through it and see what's been put in there for the day. Yes. Oh, yeah. and if for everyone here, if you want to go check it out, the link will be in our show notes. So go check that out. But um, wow, what's going on? So let's see what categories they have. But, Nitya, before we go, like, so people don't get surprised. Like, so right now it's like, Build is just half done, right? It's still tomorrow. So not all the news are yet inside the book of news. And we say book of news, but it's not paper. It's like it's a website. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's the one place you can go to to check out all the announcements. There'll probably be more stuff coming up later. But let's look at what the categories are. What do you see? Yeah. So there's a table of content. And like it's really great. It's all, you know, like, of course, there's Azure. So I'm very happy because... I'm always talking about Azure, Azure IE, AI, cloud data. There's stuff for everybody. Developer community. So that's pretty cool. Green software. Isn't it the, one of your patients? Yeah, that's, that's, that's something I'm super excited about. So uh, I think there's been tons of announcements and tweets about it today. But the cloud advocacy team, the green advocacy team, Asim, Ray, uh, Jeff Sandquist, all of them, they, they kind of announced this really interesting uh, nonprofit foundation that we are working together with other companies, and I think GitHub, Accenture were named in there, to create like this foundation where we can get together and work through principles for sustainable software engineering. I'm super excited about that. I can't wait to learn more. Oh, that's awesome. What else? What else? Looking well, on the I, side, I open it in my, uh, if people are wondering where I'm, I'm looking at, I'm <laughs> looking at the other screen. Well, let's uh, go to the Power Platforms one, because I saw one thing there that I was super excited about as well. Yeah, and five, oh yeah, yeah there's tons of stuff. Did you add anything special? You know, the one which um, I think there's one, it's 5.1.5. That okay. I was excited about. Apparently, that is the first product that's using... Um, the GPT-3 model, but basically, long story short, this is awesome. Now you can use natural language to kind of like frame your queries and have Power Platforms, Power Apps, convert them into a query that runs on PowerFX. I mean, I think this is super awesome. And I also love that we're bringing AI to low code. So uh, that's a lot of power. So what's Power Apps and Power Platform? Well, Power Apps and Power Platform, the broader picture, and I should give a shout out to the Fusion Dev Path, and that's also going to be in our show notes. You might have heard in Satya's keynote that he talked about Fusion Teams and kind of like this tech intensity and digital transformation and having the ability to have citizen developers and low-code development work alongside pro developers and code-first development to tackle real-world solutions. So Power Platforms 
is our low-code platform. You can get a lot done through just kind of wizards for drag and drop app development. Plus, you have integration with Power BI, virtual agents, the whole nine yards. A lot of sessions out there, but definitely check out the Learn Life session to get your first Fusion Development 101 learning path covered. So like all those tools, they are perfect. So what I, I like to call the power user. <laughs> People who are not necessarily developer, like my father is super techie, but like he doesn't code. But so like that's perfect for him. Like he could use that to build a bunch of application or process or flow or all those things to, to make things happen. Yes. Right? Exactly. The, the idea is that if you are a domain expert, that is, you understand your enterprise domain and you see the problems, you can actually go ahead and start building the solution yourself with just kind of this visual interface and access to data. And it's super easy to then deploy that app so that people in your enterprise can use it. So I think this is very empowering. And I, I don't remember the exact stat, but I remember in the keynote, Satya was talking about how increasingly we are seeing non uh, kind of traditional developers beginning to build solutions in their company. So I think this is super cool. I love that. I love that. So this is perfect for people who don't know what to look, or maybe they have a very limited period of time they could uh, devote to uh, watching video from build. So like that's a good place to get started and look what you want. Another place that is also very great is on that build website. If you register, it's free. So you, sh you should, if it's not done already, there's that backpack thing. And I did that uh, earlier today. Uh, like what you could do is add the session in your backpack and that will then, you will have all the information to watch it uh, later on demand when you want. And like, it's a Word document. So you could totally like export it and share it or your, to your coworker. Maybe like you have a team, you all work on the same project and you saw a bunch of interesting topic that could help you to solve issues, then you know you could export your backpack and share that to your team. So that's also very convenient. Oh, super convenient, especially because I noticed they have so many good sessions in parallel and I can't watch them all. So I'm like, I'm going to watch one live and everything <laughs> my backpack and catch up later. And their session in different languages also. I was very happy to see that. As a French native speaker, I was happy to see like there's other languages. I saw some German. I saw some, I don't know. It was a character that I cannot read, so I have no clue what language it was. But that was pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I was. I'm always happy to see that that much diversity. One thing I want to mention is all along today's show. It's a longer show than usual. Usually, hello word. It's only thirty minutes, but we had too many news, too many guests, so we extended. So it will be a two-hour-long stream today. Super happy about that. But if you have question, it means. I have more time to find you the answer. So don't hesitate. We'll have a technical issue that we'll go do some kind of deep dive. We'll raise some question, questions. We'll talk about just brand new announcements that have been done. So if you have questions, if you want to know more, or if you want to exchange stuff, don't hesitate to put in the chat. When I'm not in camera, we'll have a look. And at the end, or when I can, I will try to uh, bring the people to get you the answer. Yeah, and definitely also tell us what sessions you watched. I'm really curious to understand what announcements you were excited by. I know there's been so much covered today. There's been Azure AI. There were the four themes, you know, developer velocity, um, data and AI, end-to-end -end developer platforms. So there's a whole bunch of stuff. 
If you found anything interesting, share that with us as well. We'd love to know it. And we're going to have another show like this tomorrow. So if you don't see it today, you might see people tomorrow. Yeah. Let me know what should I put in my backpack. I only had time to watch, I don't know how many sessions. I didn't watch a, that much of, like I watch a few, but I'm sure I missed so much. So yeah, so let us know what's what's what should I put in my backpack? That's <laughs> we'll right. What do we have today on the show? Who oh my goodness. Have? So today... This is going to be a, a, a really awesome show because we do have some of our kind of old series like Humans of IT and all that. But what we really have is a lot of interesting new segments. A couple of them are going to be looking at dev challenges and have people talk about how they solve specific dev challenges where you can also kind of pitch in and ask questions and maybe get additional questions answered around that topic. Um, we also have, I think, a couple of segments around .NET. We have, uh, I think that's coming up next. Huh? CosmoDB we have also? Yes, Cosmos DB. What else is on the agenda? We have some uh, Python, like famous <laughs> fam famous uh, streamers are with us today. That is true. I heard some really, really, uh, how, how do you say, there's a lot of talk going on. I think we're going to have a lot of people who know exactly how to fill all the kind of word space in here. But NTT, so many, but to get started, where do we start? This, oh my gosh. All right. So. Now, I'm super excited about this. In case you didn't know, today was the Imagine Cup World Championships. So let's get started with a recap of Imagine Cup with the one and only Donovan Brown. I'm so excited for this. Hi, Donovan. How are you, Nitya? I can't, ima I can't even believe that you're looking so alert. Like You've been on screen for so long, doing so much. And I was super glad that I caught the last minute of the World Cup Championships. That was really cool. So tell us a little bit about Imagine Cup. So the Imagine Cup is a skills-based competition. It has student developers from over, I think it was 163 countries this year participated. And it's an opportunity for them to take their passion and, and turn it into a way to actually have a positive impact on our future. And it was really interesting to see it today because some of the solutions that they had were just fantastic. And I joked on Twitter a couple of times that, man, I wish I had a cow. And the reason why is because you might've seen one of the categories where they had an ear tag for a cow and the information they were able to collect was just amazing from that. And I kind of like, man, I wish I had a cow so I could play with that technology. <laughs> I'm sure next time if we put that on the list of parts they need, we could make that happen. <laughs> but um, I really, I, I hope I have time to talk about all of this, but can you remind me of who won? And I, I, I say this because I saw the end of it and I was so excited. Can you remind me about who won and what was the solution they brought? Yeah, so Team Roweba from Kenya won. They were in the health category. And what they created was an IoT type of solution that allows infants to be diagnosed. So their weight, their height, their pulse, and a lot of critical information that needs to be sent to doctors so they can have early diagnosis and early detection of things that they would otherwise not be able to get. Because when you're in a third world country, it's really difficult to get to a doctor. You, know, you have to walk for days just to get there and then wait in lines once you do arrive. And what this allows them to do is to have this remote item that allows them to do all that beforehand so that we can actually save a lot of children. A lot of children die because they don't have this tech. So they're having a really direct impact on people, which is fantastic. Yes, and I'll, I'll take a, a minute to basically say that that particular project 
resonated so deeply with me because we've been going through a pandemic the past year. I know a lot of new moms, right? And this is one of those things where you're like, oh, I'm like, what am I doing? How do I get help when I can't do the things I'd normally do, just walk in, right? So I think this extends beyond just their current context to a lot of different situations besides, and I'm super impressed by them. Um, so what do they win? <laughs> <laughs> so they win actually they win quite a few things uh one of the things that they win is a microsoft grant i believe it's worth fifty thousand dollars this year they win seventy five thousand dollars to go invest in their actual project themselves they get an awesome trophy and what i think is probably most valuable is they get a one-on-one -on -one mentoring session with microsoft ceo satya nadella so this is an opportunity for them to realize that they can take this passion and turn it into an actual business and satya obviously running the largest software company in the world has a lot of great advice that he can share with them on how they can take their idea to the next level. Oh, and what about the other students? What is uh, kind of what were the other category award winners and what were the projects they did? Great. So there was actually four different categories. There was health, which we just talked about with Team Rueba. There was education, where we had teams hands-on labs, which was able to produce robotic labs that you can use remotely. So if you can't get to a robotics lab because of the pandemic or any other circumstances that prevents you from getting there, you can now use your web browser and be able to see the actual robot that you're controlling and be able to write software and manipulate it and see if it actually does what you wanted it to do. We also had the lifestyles where we had 3OTech actually create technology that will automatically create sign language for you so that we can have sign language captioning and they're going to Right now, I think it's just as Thai sign language and they're moving it over to uh, American sign language and then Chinese. So it's a really cool technology there. And we also had obviously the earth category, which is where Team ProTag actually created the, the tag for the cow, which is really interesting too. So it was a really cool to see how they could use this little piece of technology to track an entire herd and, and, and reduce the amount of emissions that are created from harvesting and, and working with animals like that. So that was really great. So I to make sure I caught them all. It's, there's health, education, earth, and lifestyle. Yeah, I think I got all of the other three as well. Well, this is a question only you can answer. How did it feel to host Imagine Cup? <laughs> Man, even watching it back, uh, when you see the reaction of the team that won, I got choked up again. And I got choked up during the recording as well. And I, I don't think it came across there, but it's such an inspirational event to be a part of. I've been a part of the Imagine Cup for several years now at different stages of the judging or different. I was Once I was a roaming reporter, so I've, I've tried to participate in the Imagine Cup every year any way that I can. And this year when they asked me to host, I was floored. I, I couldn't believe that I was going to have an opportunity to play such a prominent role in such an important event. So uh, honor is an understatement to how it felt to be a part, uh, to be able to host and to announce the actual winner of this event. It was one of the top 10 uh, events of my life here at Microsoft, for sure. I did see your top 10 list, and your top 10 list is impressive as yeah. is. So if this made it there, I can just imagine how that was. Yeah, it um, was incredible. I, I think the last thing we wanted to find out is how do future students get started? Oh, great. Yeah. So if you, if you have an idea or you have a passion that you think can make it into the Imagine Cup, then you can actually go to imaginecup.com. And there's a lot of great resources there for you to build a team and go submit your idea. And maybe one day you'll be talking to Satya Nadella about how you can take your idea uh, to the next level as well. So we've next year will be 20 years of Imagine Cup. We've had over 2 million students participate. So you can be a part of history by next year participating in Imagine Cup yourself. I can't wait. And I'm going to bring Frank back for just a second before we see you off. It was such an amazing event. So thank you so much. Frank, what do you think? 
Always good. Always very interesting. It was awesome. Uh, I wanna I wanna bring now the a new guest, Elsa, for a first time with us, uh, talking about strategy under cloud marketing. Elsa, I will I will need to to know to learn more about that. Hello and hello everyone. Uh, so my name is Elsa. As um, I was introduced, I am a brand strategist at Microsoft, focusing on our cloud products. Um, and so, what I'm here to talk about today is something that we just recently launched, which is a new pilot docu series called "Empowering Developers Around the World with Microsoft Cloud." Um, and this is an idea that came out of an interest to really activate our company's value for diversity and inclusion. That's really interesting. And and where where'd that go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so many places. I think it kind of started by thinking about the barriers that a lot of developers face um, regarding entering and succeeding in the developer space. So we wanted to do something to really showcase the range of developers that exist and really create excitement around the profession um, while also providing resources for developers to gain skills that they need to be successful. Uh, we noticed that you know Microsoft Cloud technologies are impacting the world, particularly in the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America. But we are not highlighting these incredible inventors um, in our marketing or showcasing them. And so we really believe um, that the key to bridging this digital divide is encouraging these inventors to share their stories um, so we can inspire future developers as well. That's very interesting. And and what the process, is it complicated to, to get there or how did, does that work? Yeah, so um, we kind of started by thinking about what the goals of this docu-series would be. Um, and so first and foremost, obviously, representation in terms of highlighting these stories that um, showcase developers who are really transforming their communities. Um, and then from a business perspective, we wanted to be intentional about building communities with developers in these regions and also a younger audience. Um, and we want to really transform the way that Microsoft is viewed in these regions and showcase that like we are an ally and you can become a change agent and we can kind of help you do that. Um, and then we also want to, like I mentioned, inspire young developers to use our skilling resources to get to where they want to go. And so the call to action at the end of each episode is um, a link that is aka.ms slash training and certification, which is really a landing page for um, all of our skilling resources. And so from there, I was able to source stories by connecting with our cloud developer advocates and developer audience PMMs and more folks within these locations who kind of have a pulse on um, the, the inventions that are happening there. Um, and then I really wanted to make sure that the stories we told were developer and customer focused. And so we conducted some research into how we can really emotionally connect with our audience. And I used that to develop a story arc that looked at the trajectory of our viewers in terms of building attention, creating a resolution, and just building a memorable customer-centric story. Um, and then we partnered with local directors in these regions because truly there's no one more equipped to tell these local stories than the local people. Um, our production team then did an incredible job editing and putting together all the footage. And I was able to connect with our Microsoft owned social channels, YouTube pages, web pages, um, and also Satya Nadella's team to include our episode in his keynote earlier this morning, which was really exciting. Um, and just connecting with other developer audience PMMs and advocates and our Latin America and Africa channels, um, really to just get the content in front of the developers that we want to see it and be inspired by this content. 
This is wonderful. So what what is the hope for this series? Where like where do you look are looking for to get further with it? Yeah, I guess the hope is really to create a template for storytelling that is impactful and customer centric and globally representative. Um, I think Microsoft has a big mission to empower everyone in the world to achieve more. And we are doing that, but the, what we're kind of missing is the storytelling aspect. So we have two episodes right now, but we're not gonna stop there. And we, we're hoping to continue creating episodes for this series. So I cannot, cannot wait to see. So where, where does it start? When does it start? If people are interested to, to see that. Yeah, so our first episode is out right now. Um, and it really follows a young developer in Mexico who has a passion for digital education um, and bridging that digital divide in Latin America. And so he takes our Microsoft Fundamentals courses and breaks them down and teaches up to 5,000 students uh, and just does such an incredible job doing that. And this particular episode showcases how he uses Power Platform and low code to really lower the barrier to entry for, um, for his community. And that episode is out right now on the Microsoft Imagine YouTube page. So definitely check that out. We'll make sure to add those links in the, the show notes that are that will be available for you. That's really interesting. And like those people are all guided to that to produce all that segment, correct? Yes, yes, for sure. That's really interesting. And now what's what's coming up? What's what's the future of this? Yeah, so up next, after this episode, we have another episode in South Africa that uh, follows two sisters, uh, Christine and Naomi Visimwa, and um, they are determined to tackle and solve the issue of gender-based violence, which uh, I'm not sure if you are familiar, but it impacts about one out of three women in the country. It's an issue that's very close to my heart because I actually grew up in South Africa, and so telling the story was powerful and heartbreaking to showcase how they're using cloud and mobile technologies to really kind of address this issue and combat this issue using, they particularly use Microsoft Azure and GitHub uh, to build an app that supports uh, girls and women in the community to really take back their lives is how they phrased it. I really like those stories. Like it's always, as a developer, sometimes you just think that you're, you know, putting keywords, if loops and condition and stuff like that. And you don't sometimes realize the impact that you could have. So all those stories, they make kind of the value that, hey, like you're coding, it's not for nothing. Like you have an impact. It's really cool. So I really enjoy those kind of effort where we learn about those stories. It's motivating to uh, when we hurt, you know, when you try to deploy a thing and it's not working. And, you know, we'll, we'll see a few of those later today. But it gives us the energy, I think, to continue and fight to find a solution because those code really help. Thank you a lot for sharing all that information. I want to bring Nitsia. Nitsia, what do you think about all those fantastic I, I'm stories? so excited. I heard that she actually has a clip of that first episode. I wasn't sure if we were going to see that, but was that something to do with Mexico? Do you have yeah. it? Yes, oh, I wow. that. I'd love to share that with all of you. Yeah, let's watch it. it. We should watch since I was a kid, I always wanted to be an inventor. When I became 16 years old and I had to decide for a career, a career in engineering was the thing that was more related to this world of being an inventor. My name is Sharif Nasser. I was born in Venezuela, but I'm currently living in Mexico and doing my BS in digital systems and robotics engineering at Tech de Monterrey. 
I came to Mexico five years ago thanks to the help of my aunt. And at that time, I realized the power of having a helping hand in your life. We are part of a Microsoft program called Microsoft Learn Student Ambassadors. Once I got into the program, I was inspired by what all other student ambassadors around the world were doing to impact their own communities. So I started to run my events. I started to grow the community, mostly in Latin America. Our platform is allowing me to reach more people around the world. Not only people who have coding skills, but actually people who are known as citizen developers. One of the biggest problems in Mexico has always been access to basic services. Still today, approximately 40% of the population does not have access to the internet. So we have to bridge not only the digital divide, but also the divide in the skills and how those skills are matched by jobs. A technical education is really the future of education. Certain segments of the population have not been able to complete the formal educational process of the public system. So if we don't teach them how to program, how to outlast these changes in technology, then it, the situation is going to get more dire for these communities. The biggest challenge is teaching to people that are just starting their journey in tech because many of them can feel like they don't belong to this community and I really want to make these events, my activities and everything that I do very inclusive for everyone to feel that they belong, to feel that they can express themselves and that they can do what they want with technology. Our platform makes it very easy for everyone to learn how to develop their own solutions because you don't need to learn how to code. You can use these tools that are very user-friendly, very intuitive. They are just drag-and-drop tools that you can start using since day one. I really, really believe in the power of lifelong learning, but I also believe in knowledge sharing as a powerful tool that can change the world, that can change people's lives. By providing those tools, we're able to democratize the use of this technology to spread the benefits and to have people use the exact same tools that the most sophisticated workers have within our educational systems. I believe that anyone can gain the required skill to start creating solutions and addressing the problems of their own communities, regardless of their own background. They just need the right tools. Wow, it was wonderful. The quality of that video is incredible. Thank you a lot, Elsa. That this is, I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah, I really liked that. He had a, one of the screens had this message which said, "Pro developers plus power platform is no limits." I like that message. I think this is amazing. This is what community can do, and we kind of share and teach each other. Amazing, amazing stuff. Thanks so much, Elsa. Thank you. It was great. And talking about community, I want to bring now two community leaders in Python, Cecil and Brian. How are you, my friends? I'm well. Cecil, you're muted right now, so just a heads up on that. But it's good to see you, Frank. It's good to be working with you. Yeah. Cecil, will stay muted or it will come alive eventually? 
This is so to share some more about. I mean, these are the typical things we deal with when it comes to live streams that Cecil and I do uh, about Python. There we go. What's up, Cecil? <laughs> there you go. Sorry about that. So for some reason, I thought you know I was unmuted, but you know, like Ryan was about to say, you know, this is what happens when you live stream, right? Like, there's always all the buttons to turn and to flip. Um, but I'm here now. I'm present. I'm ready. Yeah, and like nobody could see him, but I was seeing Cecile before just dancing to get warm up in the zone. And I do the same thing. I know, Brian, also you do that on your stream, but we'll save people or your dance skills right now. And um, yeah, that's the better. Cecil sings as well. So just a heads up on hey, that. Hey, 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 let's, let's, let's not talk about that now. That's, that's between you and me. You don't need to tell everybody about that. All right, we'll but, see. Uh, we'll today see. We're, we're here to talk about Python and how we can solve issues correct so um what do you have for us sure so so brian why don't you why don't you tell them a little bit about like the stream that we do and then i could kind of dive in and break down like some of the problems and you know like talk to them a little bit about what the application looks like what do we what do we start from there yeah for sure so cecil and i are experienced developers but in different programming languages other than python and we wanted to challenge ourselves with learning something new and take a beginner perspective and share that journey with folks. So I've been a strong advocate for a live streaming. Cecil's been interested in doing that as well. And so we joined forces and said, let's go start a show like this. We call it Pi Weekly Live. It's every Wednesday at 1.30 Eastern time over on the Microsoft Developer Channel on Twitch. Um, so then we started learning the fundamentals of Python as, as beginners, and we made some progress there. And then we got to a point where we're like, okay, we want to take those fundamentals and start applying them to something practical. So we came up with this idea for a project it's called the Twitch Tracker app. So basically the idea behind that project is so that folks can maybe have a free hour on a Monday over your lunch period and you want to go see who's streaming to tune in and learn with them. Um, it's kind of difficult to do that a little bit right now. And so we thought, let's gather all the past streams from various channels, a canned list for now and identify those and maybe tag them with like, this is a Python stream, or this is typically a JavaScript stream and so forth. And that's kind of the high level general understanding of the project we came to start building out on stream. Yeah, and then why don't we, why don't we head over to my desktop really quickly, and then I can kind of walk everyone through the code and, and we could talk a little bit about what's in this app. So kind of like what Brian was saying, we decided, hey, let's you know take our, our non-Python skills or our beginner Python skills together and let's build something um, that we actually think is going to be useful. So Brian has some experience in a, a couple of different languages, you know, JavaScript and some a couple other things. Um, I'm more of a .NET person, so I'm used to ASP.NET and C Sharp and you know that world of tools. So we're like, hey, well, why don't we build like something new with Python? So one, we can learn it, but then two, we could actually, you know, again, build something useful that we could use every day. So we created the Stream Tracker application. And we decided on a couple of different things. So one, we're using Fast API. So as you're looking at my application right now, you might see a few references in there to Fast API. For instance, on line 21, and it's Fast simple. API is a really cool framework for building just web APIs because you know it's fast, right? Fast API that kind of makes sense. And um, so we're using Python. We're using Fast API. We're also using MongoDB to store some of our data because you know we have some like loosely uh, loose do documents that we're, we're keeping for our application. Um, so we're using MongoDB to store that. And then we're also using the Twitch API, right? Yeah. So our application is pretty much like a, a CRUD app, right? Would you say that, Brian? It's pretty much CRUD, right? Like we just want to store and retrieve stuff. Like there's not a lot of complex logic that's going on. Yes. And for the most part, 
Uh, that's pretty much it. But before we take a step further, we're getting some feedback. If you could just bump up the font a little bit or zoom in, do the command plus or control plus. Sure. That'll I make it a little that. bit more. Right, so I'll do a command plus. Or there if you're go. on Windows, it's control plus. Because, you know, we got to remember not everyone is on a Mac. And, um, all right, is that better? Does that look better? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. It's, it's pretty much a CRUD app. And we're going to have a UI that will display the result, like the data that we're storing. And then we also have this other background worker that will go and run on a certain schedule to go get the data from Twitch. So that's kind of the two main components of uh, that. Right. So what Brian and I did was, you know, over the course of, you know, the past couple of months, because we're still new to Python, we're like, well, what, you know, what tools should we use? How do we put these things together? So before we decided on Fast API on Mongo and, and even... Um, on the Twitch API, we spent some time kind of digging through a lot of different frameworks. Like we looked at Flask, and we looked at Django, and um, what else did we look at, Brian? We looked at you know we looked at a bunch of different things, right? Like how to store data, and you know what clients we were going to use, and so on and so forth. Until we came to the stack, and now that we did, we're like, well, it, it can't be that hard for us to like plug stuff together, right? This is, I mean, this is it's a CRUD app, right? Like again, Brian has. Many, many years of building apps. I have many years of building apps. We can just plug stuff together. This can't be that hard, right? So what you're looking at here is, I guess, the basic structure of our Flask, our Fast, Fast, not Flask, Fast API app, right? So um, we have a thing that gets our application. And then we also have this model. And this model pretty much just represents like the thing that we're storing. So we're storing like the channel which represents like a streamer's channel on, um, on Twitch. So we'll get the ID, the platform, which is again, mostly gonna be Twitch, the URL and you know, some other relevant information that'll be in there. And now using that channel, we create essentially routes, right? So again, in my head, I'm used to ASP.NET Core. So you know, using like these annotations for routes in my head kind of makes sense. Um, what's funny too, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell to you all about a problem that we did run into this isn't the problem I want to talk to you all about, but we did run into this problem, if you remember, Brian, was about the pathing issue. So yep. for instance, one of the things that we're used to, let's say I have an API and it's something like this. It's something like slash API slash channels or something like that, right? So I'm used to in ASP.NET Core, for instance, like I'll have a path like that and I could just make a request to it. And it doesn't matter whether I have it like this or whether I have like this closing um, ending slash in it. But it turns out, again, when we do it in something like Fast API, that that actually matters, right? Regarding regarding how you you set those things up. So that was one of the issues that we ran into in the beginning, right? Like we had to remember, hey, some of the things that we're used to in you know the other environments and platforms don't actually transfer over. Um, so you can imagine, like we spent a long time digging through um, and clicking through routes and you know running through Postman requests, and I was just like, why isn't this working? Like I don't understand this. Right? And then we finally was able to figure that out. But anyway, that was just one of the minor issues that we ran into as we're kind of going through this process. And what I want well, to emphasize with that, Cecil, for folks, sure. Cecil and I are coming from a team where we're focused very much on students and beginner-friendly type of uh, folks that are looking to start in the industry as developers. And so like, what we're describing and we're trying to bring to light through this session today, too, is that even though Cecil and I have you know, a, a great deal of experience developing at, at various places prior to this, we too still run into issues. Well, we're going to highlight one of them today, but Cecil just touched upon even another ones and other ones that we've run into 
while learning and going through this process. So if you're just getting started, you're looking to get in the industry or you're a student hoping to, you know, get, get your first job and start your career um, out of college or whatever it may be, uh, just know that you're probably going to face those types of things regardless of how much experience you have and, uh, you know, feel at ease with that, you know, embrace it, learn to fail and learn from that failing and, and keep improving ourselves. So, yeah, so let's, let's talk more about, uh, what the specific problem we were running into, right? Or I guess more about the stack, right? Is what we wanted to describe to people. Yeah, too. for sure. And then kind of to piggyback a little bit on what Brian was just saying, you know, if any one of you have had any issues, you know, like with writing code and things that have kept you up really late at night and then only to figure out, well, it was just a slash or it was just a comma or a semicolon that I was missing. Definitely love to hear some of the experiences you've had because again, one of the good things about having a community is realizing that you know, I'm not the only one that this happens to. This happens to a lot of us. So definitely love to hear your stories if you have any of those that you want to share. Okay, now let's head back over to the code. And so what I'm showing you now, like these are just the basic routes of our application, right? So I can have a get route, I have a post route. You know, I want to be able to get stuff out of, you know, that collection within MongoDB. And then I also want to post stuff into that uh, MongoDB collection. So we're like, okay, well now let's let's just plug MongoDB into the routes, right? Like we have the routes set up, we have our model, right? Which represents like the shape of the data that we're gonna pass back and forth over the wire or over HTTP. So now we just we just need to plug in a database thing, right? So obviously this, this can't be that hard. Okay, so what I did is I created a module and a Python module is, you know, for, for all intents and purposes is really just a file. And we decided that, well, if we're gonna use MongoDB, and we're using fast API. Well, we want to use uh, async enabled Mongo client because fast API supports async. And you know, every time that we want to cross that that I/O boundary, you know, async is usually a good thing to do because it helps free up some of the threads that are on the system. So that's always a good you know a good thing to do there. So we're using Motor. So Motor is the official MongoDB client from um, well from Mongo, and. I think Brian, you'd asked me yesterday, like, why is it this motor, M-O-T-O-R? Because that doesn't say Mongo, right? Like, do you remember why it was motor and not um not just Mongo client or something? Yeah, I was like, it makes it doesn't make any sense to me. But then when, when we looked it up together, it was it's Mongo and Tornado, and Tornado is this other library or module that can be used um with interacting with your database. It's another driver, I I I suppose, is that we learned about that. So that's why it's a it's a play on those two words combined together. So motor, Mongo and Tornado. So right, that's right. Fun little that's thing right. that we learned there. I'm sorry, said again. I was just saying, fun little thing that we learned from that. I'm glad we explored it because now I feel like it makes more sense to me now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, for sure, for sure. So, so what we're looking at here inside of this uh, Mongo underscore data pi module is, so I have my Mongo client, and notice what I'm doing here is I'm using these. These are called like type hints in Python. You know, so if, if, if any of you have experience with Python before, type hints are a new thing that were added in 3.6 and they're completely optional. But for me, I like to use type hints because they help me with like that discoverability of your code. And then when you're using things like the Python extension and PyLance, which is another extension for VS Code, it gives you a lot of great hints to your editor. So for instance, if I hit like the dot here, I should be able to pull up some interesting um, information about the client and so on and so forth, right? So anyway, what we're gonna do here, you notice I, I have this connect function and inside of my connect function, I have this thing called get settings. Now you might be wondering, okay, well, get settings probably gets the settings, right? What does, what exactly does settings look like? Now, if I command click on a Mac or if you control click on windows, 
because I have that extension installed, it will follow my code and it'll go to the exact place where I actually defined that thing. And so you can see here inside of this settings uh, object that I have, notice that I'm grabbing a couple of different things from a configuration file. And the name of the configuration file is local.env. Um, the reason I'm showing you this, as you can imagine, is because this is where I also have my MongoDB connection, right? So I'm going to pull my connection string out of there, and then we're going to, again, assign it to the Mongo client. So you notice I create a new async Mongo client, and then, and then we should be good to go, right? Now, where do I call this connect function? Like, where does this actually get used? If I head back over to my main file, right? And I'm showing you all this because, again, all this just this looks fine, right? This should just work. Like, nothing out of the ordinary is happening here. When I head back to my main file, we have these startup events that are attached to Fast API, right? So when it starts up and when it shuts down, there's certain things I wanted to do. So when it starts up, I want you to establish that connection to MongoDB. And then when it shuts down, whenever that event handler fires, I want you to close the event, right? Start up and shut down, right? Again, nothing too crazy, nothing too, you know, uh, out of the way going on. So, so far, so good. This, this should kind of just work. So why don't we go ahead and like run the debugger and see what happens. So I'm going to hit this uh, debug section here on the right side. I'm going to make sure this is set to my API. I'm going to move this out of the way because this is taking up a lot of space. And I'm going to go ahead and hit that run button. Now, what should happen, um, because again, I'm running in VS Code, is going to activate my virtual environment. Uh, so if you're not familiar with Python virtual environments, it's kind of like a workspace, right? Like this is the section where all of my dependencies and packages are going to be installed. And it's not going to really mess around with too many things. OK. Now, here's hitting my breakpoint, right? So that's good. And then if I continue running it, dum, dum, dum. Oh, I pressed the wrong button again, Brian. Oh, no. Did I? Dum, dum, dum. Might have to just restart it then. I did. I did press the wrong button again. Let's go. There's too many run buttons in this, in this IDE. <laughs> yeah. All right, there you go. So I'm going to go ahead and let that go. Maybe that isn't the wrong one button. You know what's happening, Brian? You remember that thing that happened to me yesterday? Yes. Where the where it wasn't allowing me to debug? Yes. Do you see that? Yes. I can't. I can't. I can't pass my breakpoint. What is going on here? Like, like okay. So how do we More how problems. do we fix it? How do we fix this yesterday? We had to make sure we removed all the other Python processes that might be running. Uh, on your machine, if I recall correctly, we did, we did that. This is, and then this I think is more we also proof did a reload. Yeah. So we did a reload because now, like, I can't even debug this thing. So we did a reload, and then I think I had to remove the breakpoints, right? Like that's what we did. Yeah. Yep. I do recall so, that. There we go. So let's run it and let's see if it actually starts to run. Is it running? Is it running? Is it running? Is it running? And we are boom. Great. So there it's working. Go. So if we take a look here at the bottom, it's telling me the URL that I need to paste into my browser to kind of try this out. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to a route call slash docs. Now, by default, I get a Swagger UI, right? And if you're unfamiliar with Swagger, it essentially is a, a UI that's generated based on something called the Open API spec. And so it's essentially like some metadata about all the routes and stuff like that that are inside of my web API. So what are the endpoints I can make requests uh, over to. So here you can see that I have this channels endpoint. So let's go ahead and try this one and see if it works. So I'm going to hit try out. I'm going to hit execute. And oh, uh oh, that looks like a lot of exceptions, right? That's not right. Yeah. Okay. So what's the problem? 
it says Mongo client not defined, right? Well, that's a little odd, right? So let's stop this. Why would it not be defined? So let's take a look inside of our file here. Now, if you recall, we have our client is defined here, right? That's correct. We have our settings that are coming here. That's correct. I'm going to put a breakpoint here because we might want to step through these in a little bit. Right? I get the database. I get the collection. And then when I head over to my router, when I head over to my router, yeah. So it says I get a collection. I insert one. Okay. And then the only other thing that happens is that we have our startup and shutdown events, right? So, yeah. so it looks fine. So let's, why don't we debug it? Let's run a debugging session and look at the values and see what exactly is happening here. Yeah, I'm going to hit the run button again. I'm going to debug this session. This time I put the breakpoints back in. And let's kind of step through this. Uh-uh, it's not going to let you again. Is it, it's not letting me do this again, is it? That's while, while you're figuring that out, so I recall us at this point, we were like, this is, we reviewed our code. We like double checked and we said the Mongo client is defined. We're assigning it to that value of a new instance of the async IO motor client class passing in the settings for the connection string. Everything looks fine to us. I mean, I mean, we've done this so many times in other languages too. Like what is going on here? And to see that type of error, we, you know, we just kept banging our heads against the desk live on stream, kind of like what we're doing right now. And yeah. we're like kind of dumbfounded as to what was the problem. Some folks that may be paying close attention might notice VS Code is kind of helping us out right now. At the time, if I recall correctly, again, it wasn't making this kind of indicator that you might be noticed if you're paying attention closely at home watching this. At the time, it wasn't showing us that. <clears throat> I think VS Code and the Python extension has evolved since when we were initially wrote this code to show us that uh, there's something wrong with our code. But yeah, I think so we, it was we, we were confused. Did you get that all sorted out? So I, I just stopped it. I'm going to remove these breakpoints, kind of like what we did before. OK. And let's go ahead and let's go ahead and restart this really quickly. I'm going to kill VS Code for a second, because something is definitely wrong with my debugger. And I'm not totally sure why that's happening. But yeah. you know, sometimes when things happen, you kind of just have to kick it and then hope it works the next time. So I just give it a little, um, a little tap on the monitor sometimes. That usually works too. Oh, that's what you do. You like tip, tip, yeah. tap the it's monitor. It's okay, buddy. You got this, buddy. We'll, we'll get through this. <laughs> yeah, we got it. We'll figure it out. Okay. So, doom, 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 doom. All right. So, we're going to go through this thing. We're going to hit this breakpoint. It's starting up again. All right. Yeah, it won't let me put the thing there. Okay. So, how about this? Let's look hmm. at. There's this cache file in here. I'm going to delete this. Okay. So you know that Python creates these pi cache files. Okay. Right? I think sometimes these cache files hold on to stuff that we might, you know, that might cause a little bit of problems sometimes with our hmm. debugger. So All let's right. do that again. Let's reload this now. It's worth a try. And it's worth a try. Boom. Got it. Let's hit the run button. Come on, let's cross our fingers. Let's see what happens. Let's see if it works. Do 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 do. No whammies. No whammies. <laughs> we should get that whammy sound on the um on the stream. I have another <laughs> sound <laughs> that I can play. There it. Oh, it went away. It's like it, 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 it showed up and then okay. it went away. So, so 
let's let's not let's let go ahead and let the the bug run. Right, I'm going to remove the breakpoint. Let's go ahead and let it run. Now, yeah. the issue that was happening, if you all remember, get rid of that. The issue that was happening, if you all remember, was the fact that this thing was coming up null. And for the life of us, we couldn't figure out why that was. So if I execute this, it says it's not defined. Well, why would it not be defined, right? Um, if we close this really quickly. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Look, you have the step over and everything now. Like if yeah, you I have it now, to. right? If you hover over if the I, Mongo. If I mouse over the settings, it has the right connection string information. It has the right product name information. All yeah. of that is correct. So why is it not giving us the information that we need? Right? So the reason is, if you look at this Mongo client, for some reason, it's saying that it's null, right? It's saying that there's nothing in it. Like it doesn't like even exist. And I know that because notice as I hover over it, like it doesn't do anything, right? Mm -hmm. Which essentially means that it's non-existent. So what do we need to do there? Obviously there's a issue with scoping. Now, if you recall what we said, like Brian and I are very new Python folks. And it turns out like the solution was actually pretty simple. Because we had the, uh, oh no, I put it in the wrong place. Because we had the Mongo client defined on the global scope. A global scope means it's just defined here in the file. Right? It wasn't being seen, this was being seen as a new variable and not another one. So notice here now, when I add global here, notice how this is now not grayed out anymore and it's now like a concrete value. So if we run this, I'm hoping, I'm guessing that our application should just work, right? Do, 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 let's see what happens. It's running, it's running, it's running. Let's go ahead and I'm gonna hit cancel. Okay, hit execute. And there we, and go. There we go, boom, so it's fixed. So what was the problem? The problem was, again, Brian and I have very different experiences when it comes to programming, uh, when it comes to Python. And it turns out that you can't just declare a variable on the global scope and then use it in within a function scope. You have to say, hey, this is a global variable. This thing comes from like not within the scope of this function. And one of the ways you do that is with that global keyword. So again, you know, professional developers, we've been in this industry a long time, but sometimes things happen and we're just like, Ugh, like, what is the problem? What's going on? And I could tell you that this took us way longer than it should have. But, you know, hopefully, you know, you folks could check this out and see, you know, this doesn't happen to you in the future. And, you know, you can learn from some of the mistakes that we made. Yeah. And coming from my JavaScript background and experience, I was really kicking myself for not realizing that because I remember when we learned about the different scoping aspects of Python, that I was like, oh, that's very similar to what we deal with and work around, work with, with JavaScript right. as well. So I was like, ah, you know, it was one of those aha moments, like, duh, you should have known that. So, and then nowadays with the latest stuff uh, that Py Python for VS Code extension provides to us, it even highlights it now to say, hey, this is actually unused variable. So, which is a perfect segue into what we want to share with you all. Right, Cecil? We got some links yeah. to share? For sure. So we do have a couple of links that we did want to share, and we do have them in the channel here really quick. So we did want to talk to you about a couple of things. So one, there is the new May release for the Python extension. Um, definitely would love for you all to check that out. We'll make sure we paste the links for that inside of the chat. And then there's also the new extension for, uh, for PyLance, which is great. And PyLance now comes attached to VS Code. Uh, with the Python extension for VS Code. So if you install one, you get the other one, which is great. Now, I know we are running a little bit over time. So Brian, why don't we go ahead and bring back Frank and Nitya. 
um, so we could stop uh, taking over their show. And, um, and let's have them move on to the next uh, session that we have going on. Sounds really good. like those live session where you share, like you said, you are both senior developer in like different language and now you're sharing how you learn. And I think it's all about how you learn to learn kind of thing where like you're deploying and having some issue where you investigate. It's really interesting. And you're live uh, every week, if I'm not mistaken. I forgot the date, but we'll put all the detail in the show notes. I think it's on Wednesday, but I, I could be wrong. Don't don't get me uh, <laughs> on that. <laughs> Nitya, who's coming next? I think we have another of those investigation. Yeah. Or so, I'm, I'm really excited about this one because I think we're calling this Dev Problem Solving uh, 101. And we're going to have Lauren Bunyol talking about durable functions memory and serialization issues that they came up with in a real-world context. Laurent, how are you? Hey, Nitya, I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. You're, you're, what time is it over there, or should I not be asking you? <laughs> oh, I, I don't even want to know. It's like tomorrow <laughs> already, so yeah, that should tell you. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, we had a conversation about this. I'm super excited about this segment. So set the stage. Mm -hmm. Tell us about durable functions, and what are we going to talk about? Absolutely. So, you know, it's all about serverless and it's all about a, a, an actual production application, which is running right now. And uh, in fact, if you want to check it out or to check the result out, at least if you go to docs.microsoft.com slash events, uh, it is a page where you can see all the uh, sessions from Build, which are currently available on demand. And uh, this is uh, an offering that we started earlier on with Ignite. And those pages are actually created by an automation that I built, uh, which is using uh, Azure Functions and uh, you know, uh, GitHub Actions and all these uh, beautiful automation things. I'm using .NET because I'm more of a .NET developer, but uh, you know that you can do functions also with other things. But maybe before we go into uh, durable function, I think we should talk a little bit about Azure Functions and yeah. serverless, right? I was going to mm -hmm. ask you because you mentioned Azure Functions, you mentioned serverless, and yeah. a ton of serverless offerings at Microsoft. So what should we know? Yeah, so serverless is uh, one of those super exciting uh, aspects of the cloud, and it has a lot of advantages, and it's all about the deployment model and, and the running model of your applications, if you want. And so sometimes we talk about those acronyms, things like IAS, which is Infrastructure as a Service, which is essentially uh, a computer running in the cloud, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, one level of abstraction further, which is a PaaS, Platform as a Service, which is things like, uh, for example, a web server running in the cloud, where you don't worry so much about the machine on, it, on which it runs, but you still have to maintain the server and do a few things about that. Uh, so app services is an example. Or we have also some offerings like Azure SQL database. And, and here really is the difference between uh, infrastructure as a service and, and platform as a service is that in infrastructure as a service, you have to worry about the whole machine. You have to put antivirus software on the operating system, for example, this kind of things. While in platform as a service, you don't. And that's already a good step in the right direction, like less worry. But mm -hmm. if you want to go even further, maybe you don't even want to worry about anything. Like you just want your code to be deployed and run. And that's kind of what serverless is doing. And serverless is not just about functions because very often when we talk uh, at Microsoft, we talk about 
uh, serverless Azure Functions, which is uh, one big aspect. But we have a lot more, right? We have yes. uh, logic apps, for example, which I believe you you like a lot. I do like them as well, right? Yes. Like no code or low code solutions. Um, we also have a lot of services who have a serverless mode. And for example, you can run uh, Azure SQL database in serverless mode. You can run uh, Kubernetes, Azure Kubernetes in, in, in serverless mode. Uh, we just announced Cosmos DB in serverless mode. And, and here also, the serverless mode doesn't have just to do with the deployment model, but also with the way that you are built, because there is also uh, what we call very often a consumption model, which means that essentially you pay for what you use. And if you don't use uh, your database, your you know your web service or your web server or whatever, um, then uh, you're not going to get built. And so, of course, it means that those serverless functions, serverless applications, serverless frameworks in general are uh, cheaper than, uh, than the uh, platform as a service or of course, and the infrastructure as a service uh, scenario. Yeah, so this makes total sense because as you keep moving up that AAS ladder, you're outsourcing more of the management and focusing more on the pure logic of your application. And mm -hmm. the way I've seen all serverless, it's really event driven. But what can we do with functions? We want to talk a little bit about what Azure Functions actually gives us. What are some of the benefits and uh, features mm -hmm. available? Yeah, absolutely. So Azure Functions are really awesome. I, I really, as soon as I saw Azure Functions, I knew I would good them. Uh, you know, I, I, I knew I would uh, use them a lot. And uh, one really cool thing is that they have, uh, you know, you, they support multiple languages. Like, for example, I'm more of a C-sharp person. Um, so I'm using C-sharp for functions, but you can use JavaScript, you can use Java, you can use uh, this kind of things. You can use PowerShell even if you want to maintain, uh, you know, uh, some, some automation and stuff like that. And also one uh, thing which is very often the case with uh, serverless systems is that they react on events, right? So most yes. of the times they are kind of sleeping, you don't pay for them. And then you, maybe you can have an HTTP trigger, which is like an HTTP request uh, triggering it. Or maybe it's a timer, so it's uh, like a recurring thing happening. Or maybe you have a queue and then you have some messages on the queue, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's really uh, pretty cool and pretty uh, versatile, very easy to use, but there's a catch. Yes, yeah, so let's first dive in, set the stage, because I wanted to, I think we want to talk about the specific problem you ran into mm -hmm. and durable functions, and then kind of talk through how you solved it. So what was the yeah. problem? Yeah, so one problem we have is that if we try to solve the problems that I'm trying to solve with functions, it's just not going to work because you see, I'm creating a lot of pages. For Ignite, we created 300 pages every half an hour. And every wow. half an hour, because the session is approximately half an hour. So every half an hour, we check the state and we say, all right, do we have more sessions that we can create? And creating a, a page means I'm going to create those pages, they are markdown, right? After that, mm -hmm. we commit that into GitHub. So first of all, we check, do we have to commit them? Did they change? Then we commit them. And, you know, if you think 300 uh, pages and maybe creating a page and, you know, committing it and everything, it takes maybe one minute, let's say mm -hmm. it's 300 minutes, right? And yeah, so, yeah, if you do that one after the other. And so this is a problem. And this is where durable function can really help you uh, because we have different application patterns that you can do with durable functions. And really the key here is that you have an orchestrator. The orchestrator is a function. And then it's going to basically say, all right, now I'm going to run 
other functions, right? We call them activity functions mm -hmm. uh, in a certain order. And that allows you, maybe we can uh, take a look at some slides, for example, to kind of illustrate That's that. Correct. Those are the application patterns of the durable functions. Um, for example, you can change them one after the other. So you can say, okay, the orchestrator is going to start a function and then wait for it to complete. And then it's going to start another one and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And here are the slides where you can see this pattern. And we have all that in the show notes, so you can go and check it out and see the documentation about that. So what it means is that you kind of, with that, you overcome uh, something uh, which is uh, the timeout of a normal function. Normal functions have a timeout. After kind of five minutes, they, they stop working, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you have a long running activity, that doesn't work. But with this pattern, then suddenly it works, right? So in this pattern, have... you're basically taking a long running function and chopping it up and then literally having a pipeline. So you stay exactly. within the bounds of that. Got it. Yeah, exactly. And that one is cool, but it doesn't solve my problem because in my problem, I really want to have 300 pages produced in parallel at the same time, right? So yeah. this brings us to the next um, application pattern, which is a fan out, fan in, right? Uh -huh. And so here, what you do is that the orchestrator is going to start just as many functions as you need. So in my case, I had 300 pages to create. I just started 300 functions. But 300 is not a big number in the in the world of durable functions. Maybe you can start 1,000 functions or 10,000 functions or whatever. And because it's a consumption model, you're just going to pay for what you use, right? So I'm going to pay more while those functions are running. But when they are done, then I stop paying. And this is pretty cool. So this is a very nice model. Uh, but, you know, it has a few uh, issues. And one issue that we had really when we were running this is that First of all, when I was running this application locally, because you can run those functions locally to debug, I noticed that every, everything was running just fine. Mm -hmm. And no problem at all. Everything's cool. But when I was deploying that to production, in the beginning, everything went well. When we had something like 20 pages, and then we had 30, and then we had 50, no problems. But when we are starting to reach like 200, 250 pages, I noticed something really weird which is that the function application was just stopping to work. And okay. it was running. I could see some, uh, you know, some logs coming out, and that was all cool. But suddenly, it stopped working. And of course, I was a little bit left in the dark because I didn't get logs. I didn't get an exception. I didn't get something which was kind of helping me to understand what was going on. So this so is, I cool think, uh, just to kind of like set the context for our audience, it's similar to what Cecil and uh, Brian were talking about, where this is where we've got to really figure out how to debug the problem. Yeah, completely. Disposal. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And so what do you do? So I, you know, it's a little bit like Cecil and, 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 yeah. and, and, and Brian were saying before, we have like, you know, accumulated, uh, you know, multiple uh, tens uh, or, or dozens of years of experience. And yet yeah. I was stumped, right? Like I'm, I've been coding for 25 years and I was stumped. I, I just didn't understand. So basically I started asking people around me and, and what should we do? And then I started analyzing what's going on. And one thing that you need to understand is that when you see the, the, the slide, which is on the screen right now, mm -hmm. things are may, maybe make a little bit more sense because those functions are operating as a unit, okay? Right. Right. And, and nobody even says that a function, function number one is going to run on the same machine as function number two, right? We just put those functions where there is space, 
right? right. To, so that we can give you as many functions as you need. And in order to communicate with each other, those functions need to serialize the objects that they are going to pass to each other. Right. And so that should already ring a bell because when you serialize things, it's a deep serialization. And you see, when I have an object, which is an event, mm -hmm. and this object has 300 sessions, okay? Um, in the C-sharp world, I'm passing everything by reference. Mm -hmm. So if I have a list of 300 sessions and I give the event to a method and the method is executed, I'm just passing a reference to the list, really, okay? But in the function world, in the durable function world in particular, when I'm serializing those 300 functions and passing that to function number two, which is going to execute some code, this is serialized. And if I have 300 of those F2 here in the middle, it means that my 300 sessions are going to be serialized 300 times. And suddenly I have 9,000 objects. Suddenly it made sense to me why you put memory in your challenge for this problem. Yes. That is exactly the problem, right? Right. So right. what and memory is... problems, by the way, are super hard to debug if you don't have the right tool. So this is awesome. Yeah. It's, it's really hard because you don't necessarily get an exception or something. It's just yes. that basically the, the machine is on their knees and, and, and stop working, right? So and that I remember was really talking hard. briefly, you didn't see any out of memory error. You just knew it wasn't working the way it was supposed to. Yeah. 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 So again, as a as a developer used to work on my local machine, I was kind of expecting to see an out of memory exception or something like that. But right. again, right in, in the world of production, and because remember, it didn't happen on my machine because on my machine I have thirty two gigabytes of <laughs> gigabytes of RAM, right? So it, right. it was no right. problem. But of course, on the on the small machines where the functions are running, then you can get that, and, and is, it just happened like the that the machine just crashed. But it worked on my machine, right? Like it's the worst bugs to debug. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. That's really hard. That's really hard. So I yes. tried to rely on on logs, on debugging logs, and all that, and nothing worked. Now, the good thing, of course, and and the huge advantage that I have, you know, working at Microsoft, is that I I do have some access to very clever people. And I was able to uh, talk to the uh, to the durable functions team, and they all helped me uh, debug that. And I think that by talking to that person as well, who who didn't know what was going on as well, right? I mean, we we really went into that a little bit in the dark. But by talking to people, you also understand, you know, you you kind of see the problem with different eyes and two pair of eyes are always better. So again, this is a good practice when you debug, right? Ask people, even if they don't know what's going on, just by talking to them, you kind of understand a little bit better. And through that process, we actually kind of focused on uh, on memory issues. Mm -hmm. And our first idea was to say, let's just throw more memory to the problem and see if it solves the issue, because that would be an indication, right? And, right, right. and it's not, not good for production, but just as an indication of what was going on. So I upgraded to a premium model, which has more memory, it didn't really change anything. But then I remember very clearly that once I was totally out of the context of the programmer, not in front of my machine, but I started thinking of my object structure. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of when it popped that I realized that I was giving some list of functions to uh, some list of sessions to my functions, which I didn't really need. Right. And suddenly 
when I thought I don't need them, I just realized it's not just that I don't need them, it's that they are just crashing my whole system. And so I went back to my object uh, graph and I realized that, okay, what made sense for me as a C-sharp developer, I have an event mm -hmm. and it's OOP, basic OOP, right? Basic object oriented programming. I have an event and this event has sessions. And so I'm just going to put a, a list of sessions in my event. But actually, that was causing the issue because every time I was serializing those 300 sessions, yeah. so I decided to decouple my objects and I had still the event object. Mm -hmm. But then I had another object, which was a list of sessions. Okay. And both had a relation, but it wasn't a reference anymore. It was just where I was saying, okay, now I need this event. I'm going to also go and get uh, the list of sessions. And like this, I was not passing the whole list to uh, my functions anymore. I was just passing only strictly what I needed. And suddenly I noticed that my problem was solved. And in fact, it's running right now. It's running every half an hour during the whole time of build. And it's creating those functions and those pages that you can see on uh, docs.microsoft.com slash events right now. So this actually reinforces to me the two basic things that we almost all of us do and we debug, right? One is you have to understand what's happening under the covers. Like really, yeah. I think what you were talking about is to go find people, talk to them about how the mechanism, the infrastructure, the fundamentals of that mechanism you're using, in this case, through mm -hmm. serialization, how does it work? And then kind of step back, not look at the code and think through how you could refine your architecture or design to not have that issue. But then I yeah. also wanted to, I think we have a little more time. So want to also talk about the other side of it, which is that memory problem. Like, mm -hmm. are there tools and ways for you to have maybe checked for memory leaks and things like that? Or memory yeah, leaks? It's a, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, strictly speaking, it's not a memory leak, right? It's just yeah, it's that I'm problem. using too yeah. much memory. Too much. Uh, so you cannot really use a, uh, I mean, we even thought about using a memory profiler, yes. you know, that you can use locally on your machine. But again, the problem was not happening on my local machine. So that made it hard to, to use. Now, the good news is that uh, the, the team is constantly working on improving the development experience. And in fact, we have now some tools which can help you analyze, uh, for example, your memory consumption and other things. And so if you go to the Azure portal, if you go to a function application, you will see something which is called uh, diagnose, um, uh, diagnose issues, right? Diagnose and diagnose solve problems, okay. I believe it's yeah. called. Yeah, and uh, we, again, there is documentation about that. We put that in the show notes. Uh, it is available in preview. And that's going to allow you not necessarily to find exactly the cause of the issue, but at least it's going to give you some good indications, like how much memory am I, uh, am I consuming right now? And some of those uh, profilers and some of those tools are available only for the premium plan, not for the consumption plan. But what you can do, of course, is upgrade your function application to premium debug it right so you're going to pay a little bit more during the debug process but then after that you can go back to consumption when you're done with the debug and that's definitely going to help you to uh, to solve your issue so it's a, it's a good thing uh, another thing actually since we have you know two more minutes another anecdote uh, since there is a lot of serialization happening in the durable function so one thing that i got is that I had the, I decided to add a property to one of my objects. And so I use, you know, Visual Studio. There is a function where you do control plus and mm -hmm. it tells you, do you want to add this property? And then I noticed that my code was failing, meaning that I was assigning the property, 
But then when my function was coming back, the, the property was empty and I didn't understand what was going on. But then I went into the property <laughs> and then I realized that when Visual Studio creates the property, it sets it just like it should, right? It's good practice. It sets the setter of the property to internal and not to public. Yes. And what it and again, right? It's a serialization issue. If you if your property is internal, the JSON serializer or deserializer, to be precise, cannot assign the property. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's going to be no. But because the serialization, deserialization process is under the cover and, and kind of magic, if you don't understand precisely what's happening in your function application, in your durable function application, and particularly in the orchestrator then you're not going to understand why is my property always empty. And I can tell you, I'm not proud of that, but I spent way too long understanding what was going on. And it's only a little bit later after I got a coffee that I was like, wait a second, that's an internal property. So yes, you know, things happen even after 25 years of, uh, of, of career, <laughs> you, you, you know, you can still fall for these kind of things, yeah. Well, I'm gonna bring Frank back because I think this is interesting that you could have had issues with the tooling, you had issues with like, like knowing how things work for, um, using like the orchestration function. Frank, have you ever heard something like this? Well, I remember when uh, Laurent was suffering with those issues. <laughs> yes, yes. I think I, I complained a lot because, and to be honest, it, it took uh, it took weeks until uh, we finally debugged that issue. Um, so, uh, you know, as a workaround, I was running the functions locally on my machine because again, on my machine, it worked. But of course, that's not something you can do in production. And I'm really happy that we solved that issue now together with the uh, durable function team who was really uh, awesome and very responsive. Awesome. Well, I absolutely hope you write up a white paper on that. I, I, this was an awesome use case. Thank you so much. I thank you. Thank for you so much for having me. And Laurent, you have super fan in the chat. I want to bring that. So Kay is is uh, watching watching in in the chat, and he was like, "Yeah, it's two a.m., but I cannot, you know, miss Laurent's talk." So they stay until the end. So I'm, very, I'm very flattered and it's also 2 a.m. for me. So thank you so much for keeping company uh, with me. And I hope that this was useful for all the viewers. And thank you so much for having me on Hello World. Thank you. And just like, hey, if you have any question, comment, if you want to share, maybe you have different uh, way to solve the solution, please leave a comment in the, sh in the share just over there. Uh, it's always very appreciated. But now it's time to bring the next guest, talking about Cosmo DB Book of News. Mark Brown is with me. How are you, Mark? I'm good, Frank. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. That so was a funny story the that Ron was telling there uh, earlier. I was cracking up pretty hard. I just it reminds me of <laughs> so many times in my own career where I've just basically been faced with something like that and just yeah, so many. It's so well, easy. I pulled out all my hair. In fact. Uh, <laughs> You know what? I believe you. Like, I'm getting there. <laughs> so I have the pleasure to already know you because we met at the MVP Summit. Mm -hmm. But can you tell us a little bit more about you for people? Yeah. So my name is Mark Brown. Uh, I've been at Microsoft since 2000, on and off, I guess. I've taken little breaks here and there. Uh, and I'm on the Cosmos DB team. Uh, and I'm a program manager there. And I do a couple of different things. Uh, I'm a PM for all of our management uh, control plane API. Uh, so mm -hmm. our resource provider, I guess, to put it officially. Uh, and then I also um, 
uh, do a lot of community work, right? And I've always been involved with kind of MVPs and, and RDs and the community in general uh, for many, many years. Uh, yep, and including you, uh, Frank, even when you were one of my Azure MVPs back in the day. Uh, so I, you know, I work to try and uh, reach and build and grow our community and support them, uh, whether it's on you know Twitter or Stack Overflow or anywhere really wherever they come. I just go find them. So uh, yeah, so that's kind of a, that's kind of me. Oh, really interesting. So I hope people, you know, figure out a, the men <laughs> behind the name. So where do you want to start today? Because okay, so news. we should start with kind of the thing that uh, Laurent was talking about with serverless. Uh, we announced the GA for serverless for Cosmos DB. Uh, so now it's available for all the APIs. So there's our core SQL API, uh, Gremlin, Table, Sandra, uh, even MongoDB. Uh, so you could do MongoDB serverless now uh, if you wanted to. What does it um, mean no, for, for Mongo? Like, what's that? What does it mean? Like I, I create an instance of CosmoDB just for like a few milliseconds or no? Yeah, so well, you would create an account and then just toggle the serverless uh, on there. Uh, and then just like serverless implies, it's just consumption mode. So you don't pay anything if you don't, if you don't do anything. And it's just a checkbox or like a yeah, like a toggle, I guess. A in the toggle folder. thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's easy. Isn't that cool? It, it is. Now you could connect that with like serverless functions, and then using say change feed uh, and Cosmos DB, you could do like serverless event-driven applications or like serverless microservices, uh, that type of thing. That's that's really cool. And uh, so now we could do more. And for people who want to try it, is there a free tier or something like that? Yeah. So free tier, speaking of free tier. So we also announced today that uh, we are expanding uh, the benefits on our free tier. So we announced free tier, I guess, like nine last year, I think is when we did that. And it came out with uh, you got 400 RU and five gigabyte of storage uh, for free. And that was free for every subscription. So if you had multiple subscriptions, you could have a free tier account in each one of those. Um, and those are great for getting started because you don't pay uh, for anything uh, up to that 400 RU. Yeah. Uh, so now, or a proof of concept or something like that when you're like in a in an enterprise, right? Yep, exactly. I mean, you can start for you know free, just doing some easy dev uh, or just getting started on there. Well, now we've more than doubled that. So now you get a thousand RUs for free and 5x the storage 25 gigabytes uh for free and there now so now you could use it for uh you know starting up new projects or you know uh even light workloads run it for nothing yeah true like you know oh, that uh, that's pretty cool that uh doubling that offer it's definitely useful like even like if you want to test it or if you want to see different scenario or Having like like you said like a little load you could yeah. run on that. I mean a thousand RU you could you could run quite a bit of stuff right. So I mean you could do uh, if you did a point read that's one RU uh, for a kilobyte of data or less. So you could do a thousand of those a second uh, and still be fr completely free. Thousand a second, yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. So I think that's enough to help uh, you know. Let people try kick the tires on there a little bit uh, or start a new project and uh, not pay anything for it. 
it's a very good news. So I'm, yeah. I'm very happy about it. I'm definitely revisit some of my project to probably use that there. I've been hearing that all day is people uh, <laughs> getting up and saying, uh, wow, this is great. I'm definitely, now I'm definitely going to take a, another look or redo a project uh, and run it on the free tier uh, now. So, so really cool. Yeah. And, and what else do you have for us? I heard well, about, about an emulator. Uh, the goodies keep on coming. So we now have uh, a new Linux emulator. Uh, so if you're, you know, doing dev on your Mac or even on a Linux desktop, uh, you can use this to test your applications uh, before you deploy them into the cloud, right? And there you're using Cosmos for free. Uh, so again, seems to be a theme going on here, I think, with the, <laughs> the stuff we're doing. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and so this is, you know, available as a Docker container. So you just do Docker pull, uh, grab it there locally, configure it, uh, and get running on it. So uh, yeah, and uh, for right now, it's just on our SQL API, uh, but we're working on getting all the other APIs uh, in there supported like the like we do for the Windows one. That's pretty cool and very convenient. Yep. And like Docker, it means it could run. So like you, you keep everything the same and you just like deploy whatever you want. Oh, that's pretty convenient. Yep. That's pretty cool. And how does it work with security or like authentication? So you're going to log in using the same URI and key that you would uh, if you're logging into Cosmos uh, normally in the cloud. The emulator has basically a fixed key in there. Okay. So you're going to connect to a local a local host essentially. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And the uh, like the non emulator version. Any news about that? Like on uh, the support of the the security or the roles? Yeah. So we also announced uh, GA for our Azure AD support uh, and RBAC uh, policies in there. Uh, so this has been a long time coming. Uh, and for people that aren't aware, uh, what we had before is when you would uh, access Cosmos DB, you would hit these master keys. Right, and that will give you either read-write access or read-only access uh, to Cosmos. And for you know, well, some time customers were saying, "Hey, I want to be able to log in uh, using like roles in AAD and be able to do RBAC, uh, so I could you know manage my security uh, much better." So now we've got uh, support for that now, uh, and so customers can go and um, you know, create new roles and do role assignments. Uh, and do proper RBAC on all of their data operations uh, in and out of Cosmos, uh, and then assign those to either individual service principles or even to applications uh, within there. Um, so anyway, it's the you know the proper Azure AD uh, authentication uh, now supported uh, in Cosmos. Yeah, Azure AD is very strong, and it, it's been there for a long, long time. So. It it's really strong. So and yeah, definitely because having like those key, they could be compromised. Maybe they got checked in and like they end up on your GitHub and now like yeah. you're screwed up. And if some developer leave, then you could just revoke their access. So it's easier, totally easier to manage more granular when you're using no it. You're passed at all over the wire, right? So it's completely, you know, there's you can't have a uh, you can't have a, a breach or a, or a leak of secrets if there's no secrets to leak, uh, right? Because it's all managed. It's all behind the scenes. It's all it's all Azure AD uh, taking care of that. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I will definitely continue to learn later on the show. So we have uh, people will be talking about security. So definitely cool. 
Very good. Yeah, and more on security too. We also announced uh, GA support, or excuse me, preview support uh, for Always Encrypted uh, in Azure Cosmos DB. So, and this is the same Always Encrypted uh, that SQL users uh, are familiar with. Uh, and basically just, you know, allows you to encrypt your data all the way from the client. Uh, but and before you send it, before it goes over the wire, uh, on up to the cloud. That's that's cool. I heard a lot about, the, you know, a lot of good. I never had to use it in my project. Like I tested, but, you know, like I heard a, a lot of great news from the SQL side. So having that in Cosmo, I'm, I'm sure pretty of people will be very happy about that. Yeah, I mean, it works exactly the same with you know with the with the secret protected in Key Vault there, uh, and then you just use the URI uh, for that Key Vault uh, secret, and then uh, you just keep that uh, you provision that with the account or configure it with the account, uh, and then you're you're there. There you go, uh, and that's available. So in our .NET and our Java SDK available today. Uh, Excellent. And then uh, like thirty seconds. What else can we squeeze? Yeah, so big one. Uh, so we're doing uh, announced a partial document update. So this is our patch support for our documents. This is our number one user voice item. Uh, we're having a sign up for a private preview for that uh, now that customers can go and check it out. And then also our integrated cache. Uh, so now we've got an integrated cache that runs on kind of a new compute layer, a VM layer. Uh, and this is great because you don't pay our use for requests that are served by the cache. It's basically covered by the cost of the compute in there. Uh, so great way to save on money for read heavy workloads, uh, even more lower latency. Uh, so down to like one millisecond instead of the three or four you might normally get. Uh, this is great for like if you've got hot partitions, uh, you can serve data from this thing and save. And also if you've got like really heavy, heavy queries that you run uh, high volumes of, you could use this to serve uh, that data as well. So anyway, just another great option for customers to, uh, to, to come and use Cosmos. This is really great. So we'll make sure we put all that information in the show note so people can learn more and dig deeper and try all those goodies. But now we'll bring back Nitya. That's that's a lot of news, Nitya, right? That was. You know what was exciting to me is I'm so glad we had him to talk about everything in Cosmos because I think in Satya's keynote, he mentioned that Walmart's using Cosmos DB. And it's that to me is like scale. <laughs> So now we've got so many things. I'm excited. Uh, can't wait to see what we can do with that next. Cool. Thank you, uh, Mark, for sharing all that with us. Thank you, guys. Great to be on. So I think we were supposed to have Maria up next um, to talk about .NET Interactive. Hi, Maria. How are you? Hello. Hi, Nitya. How are you? I'm so excited to see you here. I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Absolutely. I hear you're going to talk to us about .NET Interactive, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm just going to go ahead and share my screen. OK. And let's share that. Just let me know when it comes through. Great. Excellent. All right. All right. So. I'm going to start with our GitHub repo page because that kind of sums up what .NET Interactive is. So .NET Interactive is a product that came out of the .NET team that was really focused on getting the next generation of developers excited about building code, especially .NET code. 
And when we first built it, we were really thinking on documentation and how we could make the learning experience better for people who are learning C-sharp for the very first time. And that all started with something called try.net, which I'll show you in a bit. But then we went on to explore a wider, broader scenarios of like, where else does interactive exist? How do people share code? How do people explore data? So we also explore experiences in Jupyter Notebooks and Interact and VS Code, which will be showed later in the show. We also enable people to run .NET code in very unexpected places. So build last year, and I can't believe it was a year ago when we did this demo, right? So last yeah. year we worked with Brady Gasker and um, Diego Colombo and John Sakera. And what we did is that we built a code bot, which was using the bot framework where we actually run .NET code in Teams. So you actually sent it a code snippet and it returned an answer to you that was executed in Teams using .NET Interactive. We also were wow. able to, yeah, it was pretty cool, right? Like the same engine. Yeah. Um, enables people to do things on the Raspberry Pi and embeddable script engines and REPLs. And these are all different experiences that we're, we're, we're exploring and we continue to grow. And this particular tagline, that was actually um, came up, my former boss came up with that, Scott Hanselman, .NET Interactive is .NET Unleashed. <laughs> let's look at what unleashed means. So let's start at the beginning. Um, so if you look at a couple of C-sharp samples that exist on docs.microsoft.com, you'll find that a couple of them have these interactive experiences, which is empowered by something called try.net. And once this loads, you'll notice that we have a code editor here on, I think, on the right-hand side. Oh, my God. That is amazing. I'll be totally honest and say I'm a C-sharp.net newbie, so this is making me super happy right now. Exactly, right? We wanted to enable people to just get to the code because in the past, you know, if you were if you were trying to learn .NET for the first time, it would be like, hi, welcome to .NET. And in order to do something as simple as console.runline and run it, you are told to in download the SDK, um, install Visual Studio, or do something like um, uh, VS Code, but that still what provided too much of a higher on-ramp experience. Now, the first .NET Interact Try.NET experience was built using Azure Container Instances, and we were one of the first customers to do that. And one of the reasons why we did that was we wanted people to be able to execute their code in a safe environment, right? Because mm -hmm. C-sharp aren't like JavaScript or aren't like Python, it doesn't just randomly run on the browser, right? You actually have to compile it. And that was going great for a while until we got a bill of $30,000, right? And, uh, and like, this is a free tool. So I remember being on vacation in Nairobi and my boss calling me and saying, hey, you know, Try.net is doing really well. You know, the doc satisfaction is up the roof, but it's $30,000. Yeah. So at the same time, Blazor came out. And I could, I'm pretty sure a couple of people here are familiar with Blazor, which is you know, C-sharp running the browser. We're like, can we take that and make it the engine, right, to execute mm -hmm. our code? So we actually brought our code, like our costs down by 95 point something percent because we're able to use Blazor execution. And the benefit of this is that it allows us, um, it's, it's not a scenario we've focused on purely right now, but it has allowed us to, um, to open this up for people who want to put this on their blog 
or put it on other education platforms, allowing people to go over this. So out of curiosity, are we do we kind of use this for like learn modules or other things where we want to have people interact with and try out samples in the browser? Yes, so I believe there is a learned module that's being worked on right now that is going to leverage try.net in the browser, which I'm really excited about. And also the first prototype of learn was actually built using try.net and Bill Wagner wrote all the material. Oh my God. Yeah, it's really that's amazing. So when people saw things like try.net, the constant feedback we kept on getting was, this reminds me a lot of Jupiter, right? Like and yes. Jupiter notebooks and being able to have that like um, code and uh, like- a Code and execution runtimes all in one and yeah, people like, able to share it perhaps. Yeah. Share it, like a livable doc. So, yeah. Um, we were given the charter to go figure out what notebooks meant for, for the .NET ecosystem. And this is an ecosystem that is so pre like prevalent within mm -hmm. the Python e ecosystem that we were thinking to ourselves, how do we even get started? And I just give a bit of a spoiler. I'll move this all the way to the end. <laughs> um, yeah. And we announced Jupyter Notebooks with .NET in November of 2019. Mm -hmm. And when we announced our notebooks, we had Python, I mean, um, not Python, don't get excited, people. We had C Sharp and F Sharp, right? We okay. had a multi-language kernel. And what this, the reason why we did this was when we started talking to potential customers, people in different ecosystems on why this would be exciting to them. They're like, I want to be able to use the right language for the right job. So we said, as we're building these notebooks, we need to account for that. So mm -hmm. we started with C Sharp and F Sharp. Soon after, we introduced PowerShell. And not Whoa. only did we introduce PowerShell, we okay. also enabled the ability to do this in Interact as well, which is an incredibly popular open source project. But we said, let's take it one step farther than that. The next thing we did was we announced a truly polyglot multi-language notebook, which run in VS Code Insiders, and that was in September of last year. So I want to take a moment to kind of go through this. Yeah. When you are in using Jupyter today, you have to have Anaconda installed, Python. Mm -hmm. The biggest feedback we got from our customers is like, I'm just a .NET developer, and I just want to con concentrate on .NET code. So with the experience you have in VS Code, all you need is the .NET Interactive extension, and you're good to go. And not only do we have C Sharp, F Sharp, PowerShell, we have JavaScript support, which allows for great visualization. Yes. Oh my we God, why did I not know this? Okay. And we have SQL support, and we're bringing Custo support as well. And the beauty of our experience is when you're working with Polyglot, it's not enough just to have one cell in one language and another cell in another language. You want to be able to variable share. And what yeah. this means is that you can take a variable that was defined in C Sharp and you can consume it in JavaScript where you can do all your visualization. So that wow. was a whole intent. Let's make sure we're using the right tool for the right job. And with that, oh. do you have any questions? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm guessing we have all these links in our show notes and we have just under a minute left. So just quickly, what are our customers doing with leveraging .NET Interactive today? 
Oh yeah, so we're seeing everything from data scientists who are using .NET Interactive, but the most interesting thing is the way developers are using date, um, notebooks for helping debugging and DevOps. And I believe we're actually gonna have some of those scenarios shared today. Woohoo! I can't wait for that. And I wanna bring Frank back on for a second and see what he has to say. Frank, what do you think of this? This is so cool. As a .NET developer, yeah. I'm happy. And we will just continue with .NET and Azure automation, uh, Azure, I think I'm getting tired. <laughs> it's a long day. We'll be automating Microsoft identity with platform with .NET Interactive. I will bring with me Mr. Christos and Brady. How are you? I'm good. We're good. Yeah, AKA Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you, Scott. It's, it's a good sign, man. You know that. <laughs> I think it will stick with you a little while. Please do, because, please do, because we have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about, including um, notebooks, notebooks for .NET developers and security and identity and some exciting stuff that Brady has talked about. So I'll let him take the, the reins and drive this, and I'll sit it's here in the corner. That's good stuff. I've uh, got my screen pulled up real quick. Uh, if you want to go ahead and share that. Uh, a couple of blog posts real quick that I want to kind of highlight. What I'm going to be talking about is one of my favorite things, the .NET Core uh, Worker Service Template. Uh, it's really useful in a lot of different contexts. First context is you can actually use the .NET Core Worker Service to create Windows services in .NET Core. Um, Glenn talks a bit about that on this blog post here, which we'll have in the show notes down below. This is kind of an early blog when we first released the worker service. Um, and that's really helpful if you want to take your uh, worker service and you want to build it as a Windows service and maybe run it inside of something like an Azure VM or on-premise. Um, but what you can also do, which I blogged about right here, is that you can take your worker uh, service projects and you can package them up and put them into something like a container registry and then you can put them onto, as I've talked about here, onto uh, Azure Container Instances. Or then you can put it up into AKS, Kubernetes somewhere, or even on the app service. But one thing we don't really have is a way to secure it using something like Active Directory or, as Christos likes me to say, Microsoft Identity Platform. So what does the worker service template look like? It's pretty easy to look at. It's basically a couple of files. It's a program CS file and then a worker.cs file. And we go ahead and give you app settings and some other stuff. And if you wanted to, you could add a Docker file and you could party on that if you want. Um, but essentially inside of my um, program CS, we just you know host it just like in a generic uh, .NET Core host. And what we do is we give you this worker class and the worker class actually inherits from background service if we were to take a look at background service, you'll see that it implements um, iHosted service, I think is what it is. So so and a quick question. Is oh, a worker service like a like a service that run I run somewhere, like a scheduled task or something I can I can call on demand? Is that sort it? Sort of. Well, the iHosted service interface, if you were to build your own background service, you know, mm -hmm. like Christos worker, um, yep. then you could set that up to just start and stop because the the uh, that, that interface basically gives you start async and stop async. But what right. we do in the background services, we give you a execute async, which is really good in like web queue worker scenarios where you've right. kind of got something spinning in the background, like a microservice or a Windows service that iterates. And as you can see here, I'm just going to loop every five seconds. You know what I mean? Nice. 
So, and what I'm doing here is I'm just iterating over a Azure uh, blob, a storage blob uh, container. And right now I'm just writing out this stuff to uh, stuff to the uh, console window. You'll see I've got a breakpoint set here. So what I can do is I can go ahead and run and debug this because we're talking about debugging. Oh, you can uh, debug it locally. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I can totally okay. run it locally because um, I've got my connection string all wired up in my environment variables. What? So what? I can just what? go no, ahead. No, no, what? no. What? Did you say you have your connection string in your environment variable? Yeah, but it's in my environment variable. It's not in my yes. app So it's not secure though, is it? No. Well, because I mean, it's stored as clear text. Well, right, and right now it's in my launch JSON right here. But I don't, you know, I, I don't ever commit that. I would never commit that. I wouldn't even show it on screen. Famous last words that we uh, we saw a lot of people saying before they made the news. <laughs> well, give a, I mean, like we talked about this because one We're of the things Christos and I are working on is a way to add identity to the worker service template together. I think he might have some better code or some code he thinks is better. So let's take a I, look. I wouldn't at say better. I would say probably. Slightly improved, but I can write better code than you. We know that, right? So uh, if we if we want to uh, switch to my screen, I will show you how not to do what Brady just did and save you from the pain of having to compromise the the identity and the security of your app. So uh, once you guys are ready, show my screen, and uh, right here you can see the exact same code, but uh, instead of using what Brady did there, I actually instantiate a chain token credential, right? This is a part of the Azure identity and part of the Azure SDKs that uh, Brady already uses the Azure SDKs for speaking to uh, Blob. But instead of uh, passing a connection string, which is super bad, uh, developers don't have access to production systems. Developers should not know secrets in general. I would say, um, why not use a manas identity? Now, on my local machine, I don't have a manas identity. This is an Azure um, concept. And a, a manas identity, it's an Azure Active Directory account that uh, is managed for you by Azure. But locally, I don't have that. But uh, luckily, uh, the Azure identity makes it super easy to integrate. And therefore, I can use the Azure CLI credentials. So right now, I'm signed into my local Azure CLI as my own account. And that would be service principal account. And yeah. why would that be beneficial? Because you wanted to call into something that needs your identity. I mean, storage doesn't necessarily need my identity. It's just like I can imagine we'd use uh, managed identity just to log into my storage account. But what else could you do if you're using this get chain token credential method that you've got here? Well, the, I, I like to use the chain token credential because it's a very explicit way of saying what kind of credentials you want to get and from where. You could use the oh. default one that does everything under the sun. Um, the whole point there is that uh, I can use a service principal account that is super locked down to only be able to do certain things with my storage account. So therefore, I can benefit our, from our back and super lock down everything. And therefore, uh, any account that needs to access the blob storage can only have read writes uh, or read write based on what the applications do. And when I move that to the cloud, when I deploy that to an ACI, for example, an Azure Container instance, mm -hmm. I don't have to change the code. That's the beauty of that. We never have to change the code. We never have to touch, touch the app settings. We don't have to worry about remembering, you know, connection strings and doing transformations as part of the CI CD. It's just crazy stuff. So uh, with this one, it just runs locally and uh, it will allow me to pass that same token credential. I am actually uh, adding it to the, the middleware here. And then when uh, I go into my worker, you'll notice that I actually uh, do some CI, uh, some, um, uh, dependency injection. And therefore, instead of using connection string, I'm just saying connect to my blob service client and use a token credential. 
Now so I have really, these there's uh, only two code changes there. I mean, the only code yeah. changes is you're passing in the change token credential and the CTOR construction. Sorry. How, how much more security? Is you're new in that blob service client a different way. So that's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah. And it's all built into the Azure SDKs. The nice thing about that is, you know, with very minimal changes, we went from having to depend on secrets and managing upset things and environment variables to having a secretless solution. Secretless solution, which is great. And that's the important bit, secretless. Now, um, this solution, I, I put in, con in a container, as you said, and I actually deployed it into Azure's, uh, uh, an Azure ACI. So right now, this thing is running uh, in Azure, uh, in a container, using the mass identity of the current uh, ACI. So down here, uh, you'll notice I have an, uh, an identity that has been configured once it loads, obviously. This identity now is locked down to only have read permissions to my storage account. If I were to remove these permissions from the storage account, this container would fail from uh, running. And that's that's it, end to end. However, we talked about security and we talked about um, uh, notebooks and we talked about um, stuff. Like the other thing that we're looking at is how can we access uh, the Microsoft Graph with the worker role because that's another project we're working together. Yep. And there, you cannot use the mass identity. I mean, you, you could use mass identities. That's a lie. You, we could use that, but we want to say, I want to sign in as a specific user right. and then um, access things. Now, one of the challenges when you work with Graph and Azure Active Directory is knowing how to set up your app registration. An app registration, you know, you and me have talked about that a lot. An app registration is an intent that we uh, we show in Azure Active Directory. So we're going to use Azure Active Directory to authenticate a user and then do something with that user. Maybe get an access token to call something. And every time we do that, we get tripped, right? I, you forget to put a redirect URI, you forget to define the platform, you may be missing some permissions. And I wanted to find a way to automate that for you, to make it easy. So then the next yeah, time you we, come to me and say, Chris, I want to, uh, to be the Yeah, because we've done this with like APIs, having to talk to other APIs, clients having to talk to APIs. Yes. Now we've got a worker that has to talk to another API. Yes. It's always very nuanced. Like every time I talk mm -hmm. to you, it's like, well, last time you told me to create a client application. The time yes. before that, you told me to create an, a service application. Mm -hmm. Today you're telling me I got to do both and I have to create this thing in the middle of it. And it's like, yes. how do you remember all those details for each little nuanced scenario? I mean, it's security. We need to get it right. You know what I mean? Yes. So this is a debugging experience, right? We try to work out how to do things and we stumble across them and we want to automate that. And remember automation is king because it means that first I don't have to, you know, you don't, you don't have to call me every five days to remind you how to do things. And I don't have to write uh, every single blog post or document that, that explains how to set them up. It's a tedious process. So uh, what, I came up with, what I came up with was uh, the idea of using .NET Interactive to automate the whole process. So right now, uh, based on the work that uh, uh, Maria and her team have done, we're actually able to automate the whole thing. So um, as you can see here, the first thing I need to do is just uh, pull some um, namespaces. I'm pulling some NuGet packages that I'm going to use, namely the graph and msal to authenticate to uh, Azure Active Directory. And that's already done. As you can see, it took uh, 0.4 uh, seconds there. Now. I'm going to create an MSL client to allow me to interact with uh, the graph and create the app registrations. So, uh, I'll so, press so this you one. don't even need to like run the code. You just do that, and that goes ahead and does the does the NuGet install. And yes. now you've got everything you need, like in the 
in the in yeah. the container, I guess, right? It's it's the it's the the, the local environment here, right? So now right. I have the, an MSL client that can speak to Azure Active Directory and, and do things for me. So the next thing I'm going to do is create an API app registration because our 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 um, worker needs to call that API, right? Right. So here I can say uh, run this. Now you'll notice that at the bottom it says, well, you need to authenticate. We, I want you to authenticate as yourself in order to be able to do the things that you need to do. So um, I'll do that. I'll open my browser and I will authenticate as myself. And we're using device code uh, flow here. So let me just go and grab the, the code. And with that, we'll create this kind of an association so it knows what we're doing. So I'll put the code here. And now we'll ask me to sign in with the right account. Yes, I want to sign in. Which account do you want to use? I want to use the, the one for the right tenant. We've signed in. And now if we go back to our uh, workbook, you know, it says it's running, it's running. It's going to say it's running. It takes a few more seconds than it should be. Maybe I have to close the browser. Maybe. Whenever you're screen sharing, it takes longer. We figured that yeah, out. Yeah, obviously, it's a demo. Huh. Now, now, when I called you about this about a oh, week ago. I know, I know why. It's going to fail because we forgot oh, to fail? update this. Yes. Uh, okay, okay. See, that's not the right name. So uh, learn, learn TV. See, schoolboyer. Right. So we might need to re-authenticate here, but it's fine. This is what uh, happens in real life, right? It that's is indeed. Again. Test and it, test again. This this did happen last week. I I, I was telling him like I called him last week and I was like, how how do I do this? And, and we're on the phone and as, as we're talking, he goes, "Are well, you going to need a service side application? You're going to need a client side application." Mm -hmm. Oh, it's it's working. I was like, "How's it working? Like, how are you going to explain this to me? Like this yes. debugging process you just went through?" And he he goes ahead and he like tries it out and then he goes, "Wait, what about this dot and interactive thing? This way we could like teach people while they're." debugging each individual step of the process, like oh, live inside of the notebook. Done, right? So now I need to create a service principle so that, that actually lights up the application inside our Azure Active Directory tenant so we can use it. That will take a minimal amount of time. And next, we can decide what we want to consume and what we want to create to consume that API. It could be a console app, like the, the, the worker process that we have. It can be an, an app, a web app that we need to call that API with. So for example, here, let's say uh, we're going to call it learn live web. And then the, the redirect URI, since we're going to be creating a .NET app, it's going to be HTTPS localhost host 5001. And since we're running on Kestrel, it will be sign in OIDC. And with that information, let me save that and run it. So this will not only create the operating station for us, but it will create the appropriate association with the API so they will know what kind of scopes it needs to call in. So this is a real good example of how we can actually benefit from, um, from notebooks. It's done. So uh, just to prove the point, I will go back into our Azure Active Directory tenant, and I'm going to refresh my app registrations and overview and then back to my app registrations definitely needs a, a refresh button up there i'm telling you and then if i search for uh learn i'm indicated here there you go uh there 
Learn Live mm -hmm. Web, Learn Live TV. Done cool. and done. You don't have to touch Azure Active Directory ever again. You just grab your information from here and off you go. So and this is great because I can just go to the notebook and create an app and see if I've got the right API. Mm -hmm. uh, what was it? What do you always call it? The uh, the claim, API. not the claim. Is that, is that what the API, the API application, the client, uh, the client for That's the it. API, right? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, cool. So the the web app here now. If I click into here and I go into my API permissions, you'll see that it references my Learn TV access as user scope, which is something that we need to configure if we were doing that manually. This becomes a great tool for us to uh, uh, to show developers what they need to do, take them through the process step by step. It also uh, happens in .NET, which is a more natural uh, thing for most of developers. I mean, PowerShell is good and the CLI is good, but then again, you have to know what happens sometimes it's overwhelming. Like sometimes you look at PowerShell scripts and you're like, whoa, 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 what's happening here? Like there's too much. Whereas you can easily walk through that and the fact that we can embed um, markdown in between the execution. It means that I can explain to you why and how it happens. What do you need to change and why you need to change it? And you can actually execute it as you go. So from now on, every time we do a, a project or a sample, we can actually embed one of these books and you can open them in Visual Studio Code and run them anywhere you want. Just need .NET 5 and that awesome extension that Maria and the team have created, Diego and everybody else. So uh, it's it's pretty freaking awesome. I I, I love the way that it is uh, all set up. And the nice thing is that it doesn't stop there. Like uh, I was doing a, a TikTok video the other day. I want to show people how they can use it. And it's a great way to show them like, hey, this is how you do a hello world in .NET, like two lines of code. And then I said, well, let's do something slightly more advanced, right? Let's do a uh, enumeration of files. Like if you want to uh, look at the local files in the directory and see what's there and then I took it one step further and I used the Rick and Morty API to just call some data and run them. In fact, we can run them now and check it out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, you know what? I haven't trusted the uh, the IPN book. So, so, uh, so, this is, so this is great because now you can kind of debug through and you can write C-sharp code and instead of having the F5 and delete everything and start over again, you can really kind of go through it function by function or step by step, read as you're going, kind of mm -hmm. hack at it and you know learn in process. But let's say I get all this working and now I want to get my my worker, you know, deployed to ACI that you made better. Thank you again. Um, like is there a way that I can take the code that I've got inside of this notebook and kind of automate that process? Like is that something like like in, in in the cards for the future? Is there is there something we could talk about, you know, some other time? I think that's probably a better question for Maria, but based on our conversations we had in the past few days, uh, the plan is to uh, allow a CLI to run this anywhere. And if I, if I remember correctly, you can already do that now. So you can use the dot CLI to run okay. these uh, notebooks to find the execution. But, um, you know, uh, we're going to have a session tomorrow where we actually take one of these things and we move the staff to production. So we'll show you how to uh, take a, a web app uh, set everything up for Azure AD and push everything to Azure and call an API, all done um, automatically for you, uh, nice. apart from the Azure AD setup, because that's uh, that's still a manual process for us. But uh, if, imagine the, the, the scenario where you can do everything via CI, CD, and you know, it uh, becomes super straightforward for everyone to do it without having to know intimately about how Azure Active Directory works in their application. That's uh, great. That's, uh, 
I think that's a good time now to bring back uh, Frank and uh, Nitya to let us know what they think about this demo. Uh, you know, I, I like Azure AD. It's so useful, so convenient. You cannot check in your secrets. It's mm -hmm. just like <gasps> wonderful. Yes. Yes. Like well, I'll be honest and list. say that after Maria's session and this, I was just like trawling the .NET interactive <laughs> docs all this time. So this is awesome. Well, now, now it's the time to test it, right? Because it's it's pretty exciting. And uh, it's going to unlock so many scenarios. In fact, uh, as I was doing the TikTok video and some answers were like, now I can test my API. I can automate my API testing by just using a, a notebook, right? So you don't have to write explicit code. You can do that and run it anywhere. It doesn't have to be part of your... Um, part of your unit test for example you can do more uh, more advanced integration testing outside your app yes. which is great you deploy it and run it anytime it's cool yeah yeah so, so convenient and uh so tomorrow there will be a session where you implement that in production is it yes we will take tests and put it into production and show you how to do it end to end so uh, at least it brings some real case scenarios uh, around identity and security and azure active directory and .NET. There's so much. So if you were not convinced, Build had so much to offer. Mm. Tomorrow, it continue. It's not finished. There's more. So you could register if it's not done already at mybuild.microsoft.com. Go there, register. It's free anyway. Queue up your, your scheduler. Fill up your backpack of all the session you're interested in too, so you could watch them on demand if you want. And what else, Nitya? I think we have to mention that this was our first two-hour special episode of Hello World, and we're doing one again tomorrow, right? Is that same time? No, it's 4 to 7 p.m. is what I hear. Yeah. And I mean, let's just look at the number of really great guests we had this time. I can't wait to see who's on tomorrow. Plus, I think a lot of the sessions at Build are already kind of got their videos available on demand. So, you know, follow through on what you heard today. New guests, a lot more stuff tomorrow. And you got to give a shout out to Cloud Skills Challenges. You heard about Cloud Skills Challenge? A little. Right? Go, go ahead. <laughs> well, this time, you know, usually when you talk about Cloud Skills Challenge, right? It's like it's a way for you to learn by going through all the learning paths. Mm -hmm. But they're doing something special this time. Usually, you know, when you finish a Cloud Skills Challenge, it's like you might get a discount on certification, things like that. But this time, you have different paths to choose. And the, there's an extra special prize for a few lucky people, which is to get time with one of 15 really well-known folks. Get time to talk to them, ask them questions, whatever. So go check it out. The links are going to be in the show notes. Wonderful. And right now, it may be done for Hello World, but we should welcome some people. Am I right, Nitya? Oh, my god. I'm so happy. Hello, world, and hello, build in APAC, right? Hey, yeah. Yes. So right here, stay on this channel, I think. Or if you're on the build session live pages, you can go ahead and check out all the other sessions. The main ones, I think, will stream live on Learn TV starting with probably the keynote. So I can't wait. So hello, APAC, and it's nice to see you online. Have a good build, everybody. Bye.